The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? Yeah, they're going really well, Brandon, thanks. I was just thinking when I heard you introduce our podcast as uh, a podcast for COOs, I wonder if we should be the podcast for COOs or when we embrace that. <laughs> right. Instead of being one amongst many, we are the singular podcast that matters when it comes to COOs. Yeah. <laughs> When do we put on that mantle? Anyhow, uh, yeah, I'm doing really well. How about you? I, I am good. I had a, a small revelation this past week. I was driving back from outside of London and I needed a coffee. So I stopped at Greg's and I never go to Greg's. It was the only option available to me. And I had a Greg's coffee. I'm a Cafe Nero, Costa, Starbucks person, the more premium coffees. So what I realized is that Greg's coffee is actually pretty good. And to be honest, being a Canadian, it reminds me of more of the Tim Horton style of coffee, which is weaker, a little more milky in some respects, and just kind of brought me home. So I'm a big fan officially now, I think, of the Greg's white coffee. Perhaps it's time for me to stop going to Costa and paying three pounds for a coffee and instead pay two by going to Greg's in this case. Or you could always go to Blank Street and pay like four fifty. You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That's rich. What is that? That's like the super premium. It is now. There's along Northcote Road, I guess, like, hopefully no stalkers are out there. By the way, Bethany's very posh. (laughs) She lives on Northcote Road. We have a Blank Street Coffee, a Two Love, and a Bluebird. And they're all like super posh coffees in the nearly four pounds ago. So we also have a Greg's, by the way. So I might try and see if my husband will go to Greg's, pick up a sausage roll along the way. Just uh, hearkening back to the previous podcast, if you're reducing your, your spend level by 20p per pot of yogurt, then Greg's is a legit option. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what's in it? Awesome. So, Brandon, I'm really looking forward to our chat with David today. And one of the things that's really interesting is he started studying theology and then moved into being a COO. And that made me wonder and realize, I just don't know anything about you. And I was wondering... Like a blank slate. You are, I know you're Canadian, <laughs> and I know you're very tall. And other than that, I don't actually know a huge amount. What did you study? So I graduated from Simon Fraser University with a business degree, a bachelor's of business. So my specializations were marketing and HR, if you can imagine. But interestingly, or maybe not so interestingly, I was actually taking accounting. That was my focus. And then I realized at some point that accounting is the most boring professional on the planet and quickly realized that there must be something more interesting out there. And the little snippet of further realization was that when I graduated, I recognized that I was not an HR person. I realized that marketing was, at least back in the day, it seemed a little bit too fluffy to me. And I did my first internship at Nortel Networks, if you remember Nortel Networks back in God knows what time frame. And I interned as a product manager. And that was the first time I had realized A, this job existed, and B, it was just a a perfect marriage of what I actually was interested in, which is technology, marketing, 
and just really that geek flavoring around product and features and functionality. Interesting. Nortel takes me back. I did like a semester abroad in the UK at uni. And one of the people I lived with was going to, I think it was Nortel. And I was like, what is that? He's like, oh, it's IT. And I was like, what's IT? He's like, it's information technology. I was like, what is that? That doesn't mean anything. What's information technology? That's so made up. Little did I know (laughs) for like 1999, (laughs) what the world was going to actually be like. So then you moved into product. Yes, I moved into product. I started as a product specialist. And over the course of Roughly about eight years, I went from being a product specialist to a product manager to a senior product manager to professional services manager, director of product, VP of product, and general manager. <laughs> <laughs> so I escalated from being, you know, Mr. Entry Level guy to effectively the pair with the CEO in this case to really help run the business, which was a bit of a precursor for what I do now. Being in that general manager position, working with the CEO, I was clearly in over my head. My hubris had built up over eight years because I kept getting promoted. I was like, I'm fabulous. People love me. I know what I'm doing. Especially when you're in your 20s, you're like, yeah, I'm the person. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. You know, so I finally got put in this position where I was formally and officially in, in over my head. I was put into board meetings at that point and I was not good. I did not know how to build relationships with these people. I was nervous. I had no real confidence going into those sessions. At some point, the CEO sat me down and literally told me that. It was quite a brutal session. He was like, Brandon, you are not good at doing this. Here's the reason why. You're not doing this anymore. Here's the reason why. And I remember at that point in my life, my attitude towards feedback like that was kind of like, go fuck yourself. You're wrong. And I think over the course of several months after that, and this is a bit of like the reconciliation process that I think we all go through at some point in our lives, but it took me several months to really come to terms with that where I'm like, yes, there is some truth in what he is saying. <laughs> and I need to embrace that. I need to understand that. And I need, I need to resolve it because if I'm going to further my career at this point, it's clear I've hit a ceiling and I need to figure this out as fast as I can. And at that point, I took on a coach outside of the organization, a leadership coach, and he was instrumental in helping me revamp myself to be more of a leader, more of a manager in terms of being able to perform in situations like that. So do you think that that incident with the CEO caused you as a result to have a growth mindset? Or do you think you had one, but your ego was just so bruised, it took you a while to remember and come back to it? Uh, It's an interesting question because I feel like, I think the answer is yes. I don't think I thought about it like that. I don't think the phrase existed at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But if I I roll on to what happened after that, I think it's probably a good representation of the growth mindset quite clearly, which is my next role after that, but I really enjoyed it. I was a, I was an analyst at IDC. So IDC is, a, is like a Forrester or Gartner type company. So as an analyst, I was the analyst in Canada for mobile phones at the time. And it was a wonderful job. It was really all around thought leadership and being able to write reports and make presentations and be a keynote speaker and all sorts of fancy things. And I remember two months into that job, we got a call from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, kind of like the equivalent of the BBC. And they said, hey, we need your mobile analyst to come on TV to talk about uh, BlackBerry at the time because BlackBerry was in its down cycle at that point. And I remember my boss came to me and said, Brandon, you're up. (laughs) I distinctly remember looking at him and, and thinking in my head, I'm like, there's like that moment of doubt. You're like, can I actually do this? Because what he was asking me to do was to not only go on TV for the CBC, but also live TV. So if you screw up on live TV, there is no going back from that, essentially. 
I'm sitting there, you have the moment of doubt, and they're like, all right, fuck it, I'm doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, you know, part of it was just the, the, the recognition that when opportunities arise and they're provided to you on a platter, you need to take them. I was ready, I was capable of doing it, and I knew I had to do it. And whether I'm nervous or not, it doesn't matter. It's been teed up, I need to hit the ball now. And I was in a good position because almost the year prior to this happening, I had realized that my communication skills were not great. And this kind of harkens back to the managing director role that I also spoke about, but my communication skills were not great. And at that point, I also realized that formal comms training was really not useful back in that in the day. It was very conceptual and you sat in a chair and you listened to people talk about communications, but you didn't communicate yourself. <laughs> so my way of really increasing my communication skills was to take acting classes. So I ended up doing acting classes for almost four years in different forms and flavors. And I did local theater at the end of it. It was just a tremendous amount of fun. But in particular, what I learned was the what's called the Meisner technique. And the Meisner technique really is based on when somebody says something to you, it literally doesn't matter what they say. It matters how they make you feel. And you need to take that feeling and respond back with a feeling back to that person, again, irrespective of what the actual text is in this case. So it's a very particular technique that is really based on how you interact at a human level. And that core skill set and communication capability which kind of culminated in some of those theater productions where you have to be able to communicate to an audience and so on. All that was there. And when this opportunity came up to go on live TV, I was like, all right, let's do this. The interview went off quite well. And then from that point, I became the BlackBerry guy. So I got called back repeatedly to the CBC and to other news networks to talk about the downfall of BlackBerry because all the broadcasting networks look at each other. They look at who the analysts are, then you get calls, essentially. So what ended up being a critical decision for me in a lot of ways, because it allowed me to, to blossom into really a communicator you know, on a broadcast level. And now you're co-hosting the a podcast. podcast. <laughs> no, no, the <laughs> podcast for exactly, COOs. Yes. <laughs> yeah, culmination of all of this training. Okay, so with that uh, story out on the table, out on the podcast, We've got a, a phenomenal topic for today, which is all around this concept of growth. I'm pleased to welcome David Norris to the podcast today. David is Chief Growth Officer at Holiday Extras. Previously, he has been a COO four times and a VC and also a non-exec director. And interestingly, originally studied theology and is also writing a book about growth, personal growth, and also growth in businesses. So David, with all of that information, so many questions to ask you. But first of all, I'd like to officially welcome you onto the operations room. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm tempted to start where we are today, but instead I'm going to start at the beginning and ask you, how has your theology degree shaped the type of COO that you are? That's very interesting. So I fell into theology not because I was particularly religious. I was just interested in people and it was an angle to study people. Now, knowing what I know now, I might have studied psychology or sociology or something like that. But I'm very interested in human behavior. I'm interested in why people do things and how to influence why people do things. And, and I think so much about operations actually fits that mold, especially with teamwork 
um, understanding how to build a great team and so on. And I don't profess to be an expert in any of that, but I think what theology taught me was, because it wasn't just Christian religion I studied, I studied a lot of different religions, was the the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try and see the world from their perspective. And I think that's invaluable in any role in business. What I realized is that I came into business in a, in a, in a very ignorant state of mind, having studied theology. I didn't do business studies. I just did not understand what all these words meant. I didn't even understand what the word operations meant. I didn't understand what the word marketing meant. I didn't understand the word accounting. These were all abstractions. What it appears to me is that there's, the world of business um, loves to put abstractions upon things, put kind of layers of language and jargon that can make it seem inaccessible. And when you go to a new company as a COO, in, inevitably you've got to get to know the business, the people, and there's some jargon around. And I think because I'm very simplistic-minded, I like to just ask some very basic questions and cut through all that abstraction to try and understand how things actually work. Who are the customers? What are they buying? Why are they buying it? What, what do we need to do to succeed? I go back to some very basic questions, and I think that's my, my personal style and flavor, if you like. It's very different in each company I went into, very different. And things that I found worked in one company would definitely not work in another company. Interesting. Could you give some examples? A good one is OKRs. Ha ha ha, The way The way OKRs work uh, are highly dependent on the people that you're working with, the size of the team, the problems that are being faced, the appetite of the leadership to, to work in that way, uh, the systems available to, to communicate them. And I found that in some companies it worked really well to have every individual having their own OKRs. In other companies, that just fell flat on its face and ended up creating OKRs at a team level and uh, at a functional level, perhaps. So I have to go back to first principles every time in a, in a new company to figure out what's actually going to work here. How do things work around here and what kind of things can I put in place that will actually work with these people, with these customers in this place at this time? Because whatever I did before definitely won't work. <laughs> it's interesting because I come from, and actually Brandon and I both come from SaaS, the B2B SaaS world. And there was definitely a go-to-market playbook. And you, you, you'll see CROs that go from place to place, dusting off their playbook, sticking it in and like, ta-da, it's going to work. Sometimes, and then it's kind of boring because you're like, okay, I know what to do here, here, done. And then there's not a lot, but it only works if you're looking at the same size of customers already have product market fit. And so you're like just cranking the engine of the same and automating or not automating, but optimizing the same processes. It does not work at all if you don't have product market fit, or if you're really used to running high volume deals and suddenly you're selling into enterprise or as I discovered when moving to peak, AI is actually very different than just off the shelf standard SaaS tools, which is part of why I really like it. So it's, it's great to hear somebody else because this is one of the challenges that you hear all the time about execs coming in is the exec comes in with their playbook and that's all you get. And so it's lovely to hear somebody who's like, no, there is no playbook. Does that move into, because one of the things I was curious about is your change from COO to chief growth officer. And then also the fact that your book is around 
growth, both within businesses and personally. And I'd love to understand the journey of all of those things in your thinking. I guess I started in customer service operations in the 90s. I worked in tour operating and uh, I worked for a travel company. At one point, I was managing uh, about uh, 200 staff across Europe who were looking after customers in holiday resorts. So my, my job was thinking about, is my customer having a good holiday? And it was about 2000 that I came into working with internet companies. And I got a job for a ski company building a website and I became a product manager. Now, I didn't know that such a thing as product manager existed because the job title wasn't really prevalent in the UK at that time. But essentially, I was scoping out what the website should do and you know, briefing engineers on how to build it. I found that in my work as a COO subsequently, I found that that product manager approach serves very well uh, as a COO. Let's explore that a little bit. The product manager is, is there to assess, define, launch and retire products. And if you think about the organization that is required to, to deliver the product, you can actually think about it in the same way. So how do I assess what is needed for the organization? How do I define what is needed for the organization? How do I launch it? So the operating system or the, the management structures or the tools and processes. And I started to think about the, the company as being my customers. So I would look at how I might develop customer service software in the mind of the users of that software being customers. So when people asked me, how would you find a good COO, David, if you're looking to hire a COO? I would say, well, look for someone who thinks like a product manager, because that's the only thing that I understand. And the product management piece is really the intersection of customers versus technology uh, versus messaging and marketing. And it's where you can create value. And the transition from COO to CGO really came about because we started thinking about our strategy as a business and how we deliver it. And I got quite excited about the value creation rather than the value delivery. And that's how we now work. I, I, I tend to think more about the strategy and aligning the exec co around strategy. And then I run the marketing teams and the growth teams. Um, and we've got a new COO who focuses as a, in on build and delivery and service. It's not a different role entirely, but uh, it's got a slightly different focus. It's more focused on comms and value creation. Yeah, I feel like this uh, resonates with me because my background is also a product. I was a 10-year product manager, MVP product, and so on. And I think your thinking and the way you've described it is very appealing to me because I feel like that's the way in which I operate as well as a CEO uh, as part of my background. It's almost like there's two different worlds. There's one world of COOs that are very focused on efficiency. That's very good at later stages in companies. And this other CEO where it's more focused on growth and how you grow companies and how you create value and how you commercialize value, which is the heart of a product manager in a lot of ways, that has a specific play in companies. Usually it's earlier stage companies. You're obviously in a later stage business, but they've recognized the value in this, even in that later stage, I suppose. How did that come about? Because usually in that later stage, like you, you described, efficiency is a thing. And obviously that's now happened because you've now hired a CEO that's focusing on efficiency, presumably, and now you've moved off into this, this different role. So there's been a bit of a recognition of this in the business. Yeah. And, and Holiday Extras as a business is, is, is quite an interesting case because we're, we're, we're 40 years old this year. So it's quite an established business, although we've managed to double our EBITDA every five years for as long as I can remember. So 
we have a growth mission and we always have, but we keep getting bigger and bigger. So the efficiency angle here is is more around maintaining quality and experience in a cost-effective way. There's a, there's a real focus on customer experience. And then growth is, is really thinking about new product lines, new product developments, um, new customer segments, communicating the proposition, building the brand. So they're all kind of, and I, I actually am attracted to both parts of that equation and get involved in all sorts. I tend to think about new value streams and creating value and exploiting value, if you like. And the operational side of that, they're connected, right? So this is one of the things that people tend to do in business is they tend to compartmentalize things. But even if you take the two examples of customer service and product, they're the same thing. It is what the customer experiences from interacting with you, the business. I like to kind of quip that every customer service issue is a failure of your product. Because if your product was perfect, you wouldn't need to be contacted by your customers. Maybe that's not quite true. But equally, every product issue ends up in service and every product issue is a potential service opportunity. So they're very connected. You, you can't, you know, you don't, can't disconnect those two. And, and marketing is the third part of that trio, which you can't really disconnect either. Because if you're making a promise and you're communicating a promise, you need to deliver on it. So I kind of think about the customer experience as being the thing that we're trying to deliver and it has product, it has service and it has reputation and they all need to align. So some of it is creating change and then some of it is embedding change and some of it's creating efficiency, but it's all part of the same mix. I just think we have a tendency in business to label things and then sit in our silos, but the customer doesn't see the world that way. The customer experiences everything in one sphere. Absolutely. Completely agree with you about the importance of product in all sales, all tech sales, all businesses that have products. Slightly switching track. There was something that at the start of your conversation, I was really interested to ask, ask about. That is the transition that you've made from a smaller company to a bigger company. I'm curious entirely for selfish reasons. I've ended up Earlier in my career, working for big companies, but being pretty junior, not liking it because, you know, when you're junior, you think you know everything and could do everything much better. And then you start to get senior and you realize, oh, I don't know anything. And then by the time I moved into those companies where I was more senior and kind of new things, they were all tech startups. And so I've gone through the series A through D, E journey. So 30 people to 300 people, 400 people. And I find that when it hits around that number, I really stop enjoying my job. And I can't tell if I'm stopped enjoying my job because I've been there for five years and I'm exhausted and burnt out, or if I actually like early stage better. And so just as somebody who's come in fresh at a bigger company and senior. So you've touched on a topic close to my heart, which is the fact that group size is a massive, massive determiner of how humans behave. When you go from 50 people to 150 people, you increase the size of the group by three times, but you increase the number of possible relationships by 10 times. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's 10 times more complexity, but there's definitely more than three times the complexity. And this creeps up on people, and you, you see it in startups where... There's maybe a handful of people starting the company with, say, five to 10 people. 
And they wonder why everything's difficult when they get to 40 or 50 people. And unless they change the way they work, it will be difficult because the way they worked previously was optimized around a smaller group. I use the analogy of a um, hunting party. If you go out, you know, this is an imaginary scenario that you're on the savannah 10,000 years ago and you're going out uh, early morning to go and hunt for some game to uh, bring home for the tribe for the night, a group of six or seven people would go out on a hunt and would work in real time together to optimize their situation and maximize the opportunity of, of bringing home some dinner. You don't necessarily need lots of leadership structure in that situation. You just need good coordination and real-time discussion. But uh, as the group gets bigger and you come back to the village and maybe there's 30, 40 people there, there are families and there are senior people in that organization. And perhaps those senior people sit around the fire at night talking about important things. And that's a certain type of behavior. You then grow again to say 150 people. That's very different. That's like a village. In a village that you've got a school teacher, you've got a police person, you've got uh, somebody in charge of the bread shop. Uh, people have roles. And to get stuff done, you don't just go and wander over and ask somebody to do something. You have to go through the correct channels. And that becomes more and more the case the bigger the groups get. So in the case of 300 people, you, you're probably a big village or a small town at that point, uh, And you probably have to deal with the equivalent of the mayor and the uh, the council and all these types of characters. So. I think it's just inherent in the way humans are that we organize ourselves differently depending on the size of the group. But as the company grows, people don't necessarily see that happening. So they can stumble into these areas of being under-optimized for communication because they're behaving in a way that was suitable for a smaller group. Now, coming into a big company, having been in a small company, is a bit of a shock. I mean, I, I, prior to coming to Holiday Extras at 800 people, I was working in a company at 16 people. It took me quite some time to adapt, and it's a slightly different pace. And a couple of examples, what, what was different? Well, I learned the importance of writing down things. Uh, in a big company, you have to be very good at doing things like writing papers, uh, writing briefs, explaining the situation, presenting data to share, socializing information. You need to be good at convening groups of people. You need to be good at planning and figuring out how to make something happen by thinking ahead about all the different interactions you're going to need to put in place to make this thing happen. And you need to get to know people, and you, you need to consciously get to know people by finding ways to, uh, to, to get to know them. Techniques and strategies which you don't need to worry about so much when there's only 16 people in the room because you get to know everybody on day one, and if you want something, then you just go and talk to them. I think, you know, as a, as a mental shortcut, the way to think about it is... What is the size of the group? And therefore, what are the behavioral structures that work best for that side of group? And therefore, as a CEO, what can I do about that to bring those structures into play? I don't know if that resonates at all, but that's the way I tend to think about it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Is there any kind of practical ways of, of thinking about it? Because obviously, when you get to 200, 400, 800, there's going to be different types of approaches you're going to want to take as a CEO to shepherd people, navigate people along certain pathways. Is there anything that you could reveal to us or any revelations you've had around any practicalities that a CEO listener right now could really take home? I think um, the horizon that you're working to in terms of time naturally gets longer the bigger the group is. So I'm thinking at the moment of a five-year horizon. I'm thinking, what does the company look like in five years? What are we offering our customers in five years? Um, and how is that different to now? And spending time with the leadership team to explore that, to define it, 
and to agree on where we're heading, have a clear vision on it. And in an early stage startup, that's often a lot clearer because you, you've been doing that all along when you're pitching for funding and you've got pitch decks that say exactly what you're going to try and do, but it's on a, maybe on an 18-month horizon. It's much shorter. So I joined Holiday Extras and was trying to figure out how to get things organized. And I jumped straight into trying to work on how to get objectives in play. And people agree objectives and KPIs. I struggled and I realize now with the benefit of hindsight and the shock of the COVID pandemic to deal with in the meantime, that coming out of it, we now have stepped back and spent a lot more time thinking about that longer term horizon and spending time on a longer term strategy and vision. And that is now yielding results because we're now starting to think about what are the goals that we need to achieve in order to achieve that vision? What are the objectives that we can do to deliver those goals? What are the deliverables that we need to do in the short term to achieve those objectives? Building that framework is something that I didn't have the luxury of doing when I first joined. And I, I realize now in retrospect that the bigger the company, the more important it is to have that very clear long-term vision stated, communicated, socialized, and aligned upon. If you think of that as being a pyramid or a stack where it goes from purpose and vision at the top and going through to objectives and deliverables at the bottom, it's very difficult to start in the middle of that stack. I've, I've learned the hard way that I need to start at the top of that stack and then work down the stack. So this is where perhaps I'm spending more of my time thinking about the top of the pyramid and our CEO is thinking more about the middle in terms of the delivery of that strategy. That's the learning, I think. Equally, if I went into a small company with 10 people and started talking about a five-year vision, and it might just seem a little bit abstract for people. So David, you've mentioned learning a lot in that last answer. I'm going to pull back to the start of the conversation again around the book that you're writing, and it's about growth, but it's not just about business growth, but personal growth as well. I just thought that would be interesting to understand that element. Do you have a set of questions for personal growth in the same way? Yeah, so... I kind of only realized in, in, in recent months that there is a big connection. And I realized that there was quite a lot around creating business value and organizing businesses. But I realized there's a lot of reflections in there on how you lead teams. And actually, there was a fair amount in there about how you develop as a person. It struck me that um, in order for companies to grow, their leaders also need to grow. And their leaders need to have a growth mindset. And what I mean by that is the the humility to accept that you don't yet know enough and that you are always learning and to search for new learning as you go. And then the, the other key part of that for me is that personal growth of challenging yourself to do things you've not done before or become better at doing things usually means leaning into something you don't really want to do. It means not fearing the thing that you fear And that's kind of sounds quite abstract, but an example would be if there's a meeting that you need to have and you're feeling nervous about it and you're fearing the confrontation, then that is probably the meeting you do need to have. And by saying the reason I feel fearful about it is because it's stretching me, recognizing that and saying, well, that's a good thing and embracing it rather than backing off is the difference between growing and you know, staying where you are. So yeah, I kind of I kind of see those two business versus personal growth being two sides of the same coin because without leaders adopting that growth mentality, a business will find it hard to grow. 
Maybe a quick follow-up question. I was in a situation many, many years ago where I was given feedback. The feedback was quite harsh. And you go into this scenario where you start uh, doubting the veracity of your skills. And I guess from a growth mindset point of view, as to what you're describing, what's a good way to think about that kind of scenario? Sometimes the way to get over them is to put yourself in a tribe of people that you align with. Because it may well just be that you're in the wrong tribe. And it can be better just to leave and join another tribe where people like what you do and value what you do. That is definitely the case. Like, I think it's such a challenge on, is it legitimate feedback or is it because of a system? So company that you're not fitting into as women, we just don't fit in in general as much. Like there was a recent article, I can share it in the episode notes that's come out that like basically women are criticized for everything at work and in a way that we can't. So we're either we're too ambitious or we're too passive. We don't do this. We don't do that. So just for like the women listeners out there, I think you do have an added challenge, not just what David you're talking about is completely like, am I being bullied? Am I in a situation where I just don't fit in or is it legitimate or is it because there's just a higher bar and I need to figure out which parts can I learn from and which parts do I just say, well, that's for somebody else. <laughs> that's somebody else's problem. <laughs> it's not It's not mine. That's a great point, Beth. And I, I think that is someone else better to do this is actually a really healthy question. And it the flip side of that question is, what am I really good at? What is the thing that I do better than anyone else that I know I do better than anyone else? And how do I make sure that I do more of that in my role? And I'm a great believer in people trying to identify what their strengths are and play to those strengths. And my my personal approach is if I know I've got some areas of weakness, and we all do, find team members that you can surround yourself with, either peers or people that report to you, that can do the bits you're not very good at. Yep. Hire those people. <laughs> Hire for your weaknesses or, or partner. So um, I'm currently doing a project with our CFO. And that works really well because there's things that I know I can do that he can't and vice versa. And we sit together and we've agreed those roles and we're running that project together rather than me trying to take it all on my own shoulders or him trying to take it on his own shoulders. Self-awareness is just so key to not driving yourself crazy or others, particularly the more senior you get. David, unfortunately, it's been a fantastic conversation. Unfortunately, we're rapidly coming to the end. First question I have for you is... When's the book coming out? Is the blog still live? If people would like to learn more from you, how do they get in touch? Thank you. Uh, well, the blog is still live. It's called Norris Node, as in a node in a network and my surname, Norris, norrisnode.com. I don't post that often, but when I do, something new goes up. The book uh, I'm calling Growthodox, um, which I'll reveal what that means later. I've done the first draft. I'm tidying it up now with some beta readers. So if anybody wants to have a beta read and give me some feedback, I'd love it. But I'm hoping to publish in um, probably September, maybe October. Um, I'll, I'll put it onto Amazon and I'll be on LinkedIn. But very, very happy to connect with other COOs and see how I can help. Find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Thanks, David. And the final question is if our listeners could only take one thing away from our conversation, what's the one thing they should remember? I, I would encourage people to go back to 
just asking real simple questions in simple language and avoiding abstraction. Because I find that often is the best way to get to the root of an issue, understand how you can move forward. Basically, avoid jargon at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some wise, wise words. Uh, so thank you, David Norris, for joining us on the Operations Room. And for those listening, uh, thank you for listening uh, to the Operations Room. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And we will see you next week.